Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is a by-the-book episode, a conversation with Tim Muehlhoff about a book that he wrote last year called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And Tim is a professor of communication at Biola University in California, as well as a speaker and research consultant for the Center for Marriage and Relationships. His books include I Beg to Differ, Authentic Communication, The God Conversation, and Defending Your Marriage. Together with Richard Langer, he is the co-author of Winsome Conviction, the book we're going to talk about today, as well as Winsome Persuasion, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book Award in Apologetics and Evangelism. In addition to teaching and writing, Tim and Rick are co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project, which seeks to introduce civility and compassion into our discussion of differences. And Tim and his wife, Noreen, are frequent speakers at Family Life Marriage Conferences. And I am very excited for you to listen in on the conversation that Tim and I have. Um, We are, in fact, dealing with convictions, and we'll talk at length about what that means and attempt to apply it to situations that many people today have a difficult time imagining are convictions. Things like political leanings, um, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, um, gender discussions, and transgender discussions, and on and on and on. And Tim was an incredible breath of fresh air to me. You'll hear me asking him lots of questions, some of them uh, related to ministry, and some of them just very personal and practical because I can sense having read the book and then of course having talked to Tim as well and here's somebody who's really wrestling down in the in the in the reality and so I was very excited to have a conversation with him as you'll hear at the end we kind of jokingly but sort of seriously talk about maybe even having me read his other book and having another conversation sometime in the future I'm always open to that won't commit myself to anything at this point never know what what the future holds but this is a book you want to go out and buy when some conviction is a book that members of your small group will want to read with you and have conversations about when some conviction is a book that that the language of which needs to begin to take root in the life of a local church because we are at a point in our society today where we are simply unable to talk to one another. And Tim will explain sort of how they came to that same conclusion, which ultimately birthed the book Winsome Conviction. So I'm very excited for you to listen in on this conversation. I think you will be encouraged. This is going to be the last by the book episode for several months as I plan to take a break, catch up on some reading, some study, and other responsibilities with my life and ministry. But I'm excited to leave this one with you because it is a good one. And so with that, I offer to you the conversation I have with Tim Muehlhoff. Well, welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. Today we have Tim Muehlhoff with us on the podcast. He's the co-author along with um, Richard Langer of the book Winsome Conviction disagreeing without dividing the church. And Tim, it's really a great honor and a a privilege to have you on the show. Thanks for agreeing to be on today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, This is a topic we need to talk about, and I'm always willing to do it. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And I just finished your book, Tim, and loved every bit of it and have lots of markings and lots of things I want to talk about today. Um, But just for the benefit of our listeners, maybe some haven't 
ever heard of your book. Some have heard of it, but haven't read it. Maybe some have read it. Um, but would you mind giving us just a little bit about you, where you where you are now, and maybe a little bit about your story that led to the writing of this book? And then if you wouldn't mind even adding into it, just what led you and, and uh, Richard to, to write this book together? Well, um, like most Americans, we're concerned that we're learning how not to talk to each other. In the time when we need to talk about immigration, sexuality, gender, critical race theory, we've lost the ability to have productive, good conversation. So Rick and I are the co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project, a five-year project aimed at um, helping have civil, compassionate conversations, both with Christians, but also with those outside the church. And so our first project was to go outside the church. Let's talk to people who don't self-identify as Christians. We know we have disagreements there, so let's tackle them first. So we wrote our first book, which is called Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World, and had a very interesting time, Josh, uh, talking to people who don't subscribe to the Christian worldview, who call into question many of our key beliefs. Um, So we finished that book. Got great response from people, but the entire time we were doing it, we had pastors, church leaders come up to us and say, Hey, guys, it's great that you're helping us talk with people outside the church, but everything you're writing about is happening in the church. Mm. The church is a mess. We can't talk to each other, and these issues are dividing us. And it's even more hurtful when Christians disagree with each other, and we're both quoting the Bible and we're making no headway whatsoever. So, Josh, after about two years of that, Rick and I decided, you know what, we need to write a book not for how to talk to non-Christians about things that you disagree with deeply, but how do you talk to each other when you're fellow Christ followers and you're both reading the same Bible, but you're getting very, very different conclusions, and now tensions are rising, people are leaving the church. Uh, So that's how Winsome Conviction came about. Uh, Rick has been a pastor for 20 years. I was an interim teaching pastor at two different churches for one-year stints. So I got a chance to see a little bit about the workings of a church. Rick and I both teach at a Christian university that has struggles. So that's kind of how we wrote the book is let's let's talk about how to talk to each other uh, inside the church. And we can keep those conversations going with those outside the church as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've I've actually not read your first book. Um, and so what? I'm curious. What? I know. Can you believe Josh. that? How terrible. This is I'm gonna have to shut this podcast recording down and go <laughs> repent and get get on Amazon and go buy the thing. So well, let me ask you this. I'm really curious now how what what parts of winsome persuasion overlapped with winsome conviction? Um, which parts did you kind of tend? You know what? This this message could be just as pertinent to the church, or were they very different? No, you know, that's a great question, Josh. You, you know, you're going to have a certain communication toolbox that you're going to use with everybody. It, it applies in all directions. So if you go to Winsome Persuasion, um, we're borrowing from Aristotle. Aristotle's concept of ethos, right? Aristotle would say, listen, first, you need to know both sides of the issue. You need to be able to articulate both sides of an issue. So if you're talking critical race theory, if you're talking Black Lives Matter, you need to talk both sides. You need to understand both sides. Second, you need to have goodwill 
So when you do disagree with these people, you do it in a way that has a sense of of concern for the other person, goodwill. You're believing the best about that person. And then he would have what he calls virtue, which means, are you living out a virtuous life? The things that you talk about in public, are you living those out in private? Well, Josh, I think we could take all of that and kick it right into our disagreements, not just with non-Christians, but with people sitting next to us in the pew, right? Do I have credibility with these people? Do I know both sides of the argument? Um, Do I show charity and goodness towards uh, my fellow Christians? And the answer to a lot of that is no, not our church disagreements get ugly very quickly. And we kind of throw Aristotle out the window. We throw uh, the scriptures kind of out the window that talk about be gentleness, speak truth and love. So, Josh, I think I think we saw the the building blocks with uh, winsome persuasion for non-Christians. It can work inside the church, but there's a sense of betrayal inside the church. Like I expect people outside our church or Christian university to disagree with us and to call into question our deepest values. I just expect that. But when I come into my church and I'm sitting next to you in a pew and you turn to me and say, wait, I completely disagree with you when it comes to defund the police. I completely disagree with the way you, you, you're going to vote. You're going to vote for who? Right? And, and what makes it even harder, Josh, is we all have what we call the trump card. And the trump card is, well, this is what the Bible says. Yep. yep. And people disagree with it. They're like, that is, that is absolutely not what the Bible says. It actually says the exact opposite of what you're trying to make it to say. Now, tension rises, voice, voices get raised, people leave the church, and Rick and I sit back and we just smile and we go, business is good. <laughs> yeah, yep. You know that's what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yep. That's right. Well, that's that's really great. And I think your book provided a perfect um, hand-in-the-glove fit for me, because of that last point you just made when you said people will read the Bible, they'll have this trump card, which is typically a verse that, that's pulled out that kind of covers over any other verse that the Bible talks about. And I generally teach, preach, lead from the standpoint of what is the, the theological or the story, story thrust of scripture and how does that verse fit into the overall thrust. But what you're doing is saying, hey, how does the person's life who's approaching that passage, what, let's talk about why those verses maybe are, are uh, used so quickly in defense of what somebody believes and to be able to listen to their perspective, knowing I've got my own handful of Bible verses that I could trump their view with. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like yeah. that's where we get, we, we get to this point where then we make very dismissive, well, clearly that person just doesn't read the Bible or that person just doesn't take the Bible seriously. And um, I have to say from a a teacher perspective, one of my biggest weaknesses is taking ideology and bringing it down to the very like, you know, skin and bones of real life and Mm. your book Wow. I mean, you right out of the gate, you're just, you're talking about the 2016 election. You're talking about Black Lives Matter. You're you're talking about every hot button issue. And I looked at that first page and I thought, oh my goodness, this book 
he's not shying away from anything. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you aren't because these issues are very prevalent in our churches and, um, the discussions are a lot more nuanced than people sometimes think they are. So just for the benefit of those, Tim, maybe who haven't read your book or don't exactly know sort of what we're talking about, um, could you define conviction for us and then talk a little bit about convictions relate with maybe, um, you know, absolute truths or things that we would believe doctrinally, which I think sometimes get blurred in our Mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah, Josh, that's a great question. And Paul had to deal with it in a very practical way because he's bringing together Jewish and Gentile converts. And you get um, days and diets come in very quickly. And you have Jewish converts who are saying, well, of course, of course we observe days and diets. Uh, I'm not leaving my whole Jewish background to convert to this Christian movement. And the Gentile believers are like, well, yeah, fine. I don't know. Go ahead. That's fine. I'm not, I don't have any of that baggage. So I don't care. I don't care about days and diets. Uh, you know, that's an important issue because you've now got two people that are seeing things differently. So the Apostle Paul starts to lay out some criteria, gives us helpful language. He says, okay, first, there are what we could call confessional beliefs. These are beliefs that when you get up in church, you stand up. You know, uh, we believe in God the Father. We believe Jesus Christ is God incarnate. We believe that salvation is found in Christ alone. We believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe the scriptures are inerrant. We believe that they're trustworthy. And those are all confessional beliefs. And everybody can stand and say, yes, I confess that these are these types of beliefs. Biola University, if you're a professor, you have to stand and sign the doctrinal statement. There is no wiggle room for that kind of an issue. So once those things are in place, now we're getting into some interesting issues. Like what about immigration? What about um, other doctrines that don't seem quite as clear that we can make them confessional? Uh, like I'm thinking Calvinism, Arminianism, right? Which is so funny because I'm a diehard Arminian and a couple of my friends are diehard Calvinist, right? Mm, but, yeah. but that's not a confessional belief. Because why? Because it's, Paul then introduces this very interesting phrase because it's disputable. That Even though, Josh, one of my deepest convictions is that I'm, a, I'm an Arminian, I can see where my Calvinist friends get it from. When I read Romans 9, 10, and 11, I get it. I get where they they find it, but I still think they're wrong. I, I don't think that is the best interpretation of Romans 9, 10, and 11, right? That God's micromanaging earth. But, but it's a disputable matter. So now the question becomes, what do we do when we both are passionate about an issue? It's not a confessional belief. So how do we coexist with each other when we really feel like we're reading the Bible differently? We kind of have a different God we pray to a little bit. My God much more works in the areas of free will, while a Calvinist God much more decrees things and, in my words, would be micromanage. Well, can you get along? That's what this book is about. 
Yeah. Can you disagree with each other on theological issues? But then we, let's go to Black Lives Matter. Let's go to the value of critical race theory. Uh, can we go to the election? We're, we're, I had one friend of mine would get up in front of students and say, it is a sin for you not to vote for President Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and so, okay, so what do you do with those disputable matters? Can you still have harmony and try to fulfill the mission of your university, the mission of your church. Wow. <laughs> well, and you define conviction. I'll just read it here from your page 33 to 34. Just convictions then are firmly held moral or religious beliefs that guide our beliefs, actions, or choices. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about those beliefs and choices regarding Yes, it's it's a moral imperative to vote for President Trump, or we must oppose Black Lives Matter because we believe there are some um, atheistic or socialistic roots um, in the history of that movement. And if we knew that, we would just re- be able to reject it. And so um, you you had a fascinating discussion even regarding where people take their core values, many of which are shared by Christians, regardless of some of these convictional places. And yet you opened up the door to the fact that we oftentimes reprioritize or we reorder those core values. So they're not always in the same order. And that's some of the reasons why we disagree with one another. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what you mean by reordering the core values? Oh, that's great, Josh. So let's make this super practical. So when the death of George Floyd happened, and there are literally riots in the streets. Uh, one church we were working with said, this is the moment. This is our moment to make an impact with, the, with the, our surrounding communities because we're called to reach the surrounding communities. So this is it. Let's scrap everything. And now let's tackle the race issue by being on the streets marching with Black Lives Matter because God cares about race. Okay, and I absolutely believe that. God cares about race. I think that's a deeply held biblical conviction. Well, the other group was like, yeah, but we do so many other good things. We have missionaries in other countries. We help support foster care. We're doing domestic violence shelters. And we're going to scrap everything and do race? Now, listen, race is important. But I don't think it's more important than us caring for Uh, orphans and widows in distress. So you see what just happened, Josh? I don't think anybody's going to say race is not an important issue. But when one group says, good, let's make it the top of our list. Let's scrap the series we were going to preach on. And now let's preach on race. Let's put some signs out on our um, building so that all the community can see that says Black Lives Matter. And so now you've got Christians saying, Listen, we're not going to do that. We're not putting Black Lives Matter sign on our wall. Well, what about their Marxist leanings? What about this? And, and all, you know, so what happens is you get people who generally care about the same things, but when you have limited church resources, where are we going to put our time and money? That's when you get really deep disagreements because now we need each other. Right. If this was just my house, I can decide what I can decide. I can put a big banner on the on my roof 
and I can make race the central issue of my family. But when you're in a church, if, if we go your direction, we have to use allocate resources to go your direction. And that's yeah. where you get really deep arguments within churches because we all agree at, at a 10,000-foot level that race, immigration, sexuality, the Great Commission, neighbor love are important, but now start to rank th- those where the money's going to go. Then you have people getting mad and feelings getting hurt. Yeah. Well, and as I shared with you before we started recording, you you have a section toward the end of your book called Conviction Mapping, which was my personal favorite section of your whole book. But that is getting to know the backstories, getting to know the underlying reasons, the emotional connections that people have to their various convictions, and not just labeling those people or yourself for that matter as you know, I am my position or, or what have you. And so I, I, this is, I guess, a kind of a question I wasn't even thinking of asking you, but how, how do you see in our day, is the conviction mapping the center of how it is that some Christians really do see race as the most important thing to talk about? And then there are others who, who I think because they don't see it that strongly, I mean, goodness, Tim, we're in this age now where if you don't take extremely active measures to fight racism, it's because you're a racist. Um, right. And the, 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 the dialogue is, is, has been completely shut down. So I'm not sure. I'm kind of throwing a lot of things at you there, but I, I hear that tension that you've just painted. Where does that come from, though? How, how is it that Christians, what, what are the steps that they take maybe to arrive at those wildly differing prioritizing of values, maybe? Well, Josh, this is such a great question. And I think it's become apparent we're going to have to do a sleepover. This is going to go all through the night. (laughs) We're going to be tired at three in the morning. And then we'll we'll just have a sleepover. Because these these are massive, massive questions. And I think, honestly, I think I'll be really transparent. Sometimes our first two books don't do as well. No, they've done well. And one even garnered a nice award. But I think when people start to read it, they go, oh, no, no, this is too much. I, I, I want something mm. a bit quicker than this. Like, yeah. I, I want a bit of a quicker fix than this. Yeah. And we're just not that. It's just not that book. It, it, now, we try to write it engaging. We, we try not to be overly academic. But, but Josh, these are not easy fixes. Nope. And so we just feel like we have to set it up and address it in a way that is fairly complex because this is a fairly complex issue. Uh, so here's, let me mention about conviction mapping with an illustration that kind of sets it up a little bit for me uh, and, and maybe helps the listeners understand what we're trying to talk about. So when I was in college, I played basketball and there was a killer shoe sale happening. And so between classes, me and me and three of my buddies, we went running out to this place because we're all get basketball shoes, buy one, get one free kind of a thing. So they go running in, the place is packed. I run in, Josh, and it's like I'm hit with an invisible force field. Like I cannot walk into the store. And my friends turn around, they say, dude, what's up? Come on, these shoes are great. I, I can't walk into the shoe store because there's one man to the, my right who's holding a picket sign that says uh, unfair wages on strike. Now, my other friends saw it. They didn't care. They're buying shoes. I saw it and had to stop. Now, here's where conviction mapping comes in. 
you say to me, Tim, what are your convictions about unions? And Josh, I would honestly say to you, I don't know what I think about unions. I don't know what I think, but I can't go into the store. Why? Well, because my dad, he, he worked for General Motors. I remember three times, Josh, our family going on strike and waking up in the morning and there was milk, bread, and money on our doorstep from the union organizers that were to get us through the next week because we had nothing. Wow. And so I remember my dad grabbing my hand, looking, looking me right in the eye and saying, you never cross another man's picket line. So Josh, that's, I think, where a lot of people are today. I have this conviction. I can't fully explain it. I feel strongly about it. I'm not sure why I feel strongly about it. I have a verse I kind of cling to, but I, I, I'm not always clear of how I got my convictions. So that helped us to create this process we call conviction mapping, where we, we would take people through their convictions and help them map it. Like, like what biblical passages tend to resonate with you? What life experiences uh, kind of foster your understanding of this issue? Um, you, know, you know, things like that is what we're talking about, Josh. It's, it's so hard to just map your convictions to see how you arrived at this present place. Yeah. And then the freedom and the, the value of being able to take the time, number one, to be sensitive to your own, what, what emotions are stirred up. I think you both had mentioned that as well. And then you yeah. gave this phrase of saying something like, I'm, I'm missing the exact words, but something like, I think why I think this is because, mm. or so, something to that. Is that, is that the phrase or did I almost get it right? Yeah. Here's what I think. I think. Here's what I think. I think. Okay. Yeah. And you, you had both of you had said that the value of that is it. It kind of softens that objective. This is the way it has to be. It kind of invites humility and vulnerability, and then it invites someone else to to be like, well, okay, maybe I haven't fully thought through mine either, but this is what I think. I think, and I I, I found that <laughs> really helpful personally because generally in these conversations, that verse is quoted or this. God would never be pleased with that. And, and you even had a section where you two connected. We oftentimes make our convictions if we connect them closely enough to an indisputable theological point like the Trinity. Right, right. Then we believe, I think you connected it to complementarianism or, or gender roles or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you connect it to an indisputable matter like the Trinity, well, then if somebody disagrees with your conviction now, well, they're clearly wrong because they're disagreeing with the Trinity. And man, I just, I see this happening all the time and you're the first ones who've ever put language to it um, to help us maybe slow down and, and think through these things a little more carefully. Well, Josh, we call that weaponizing a belief. Hmm. Uh, yeah. we weaponize it. So let me give you a different metaphor that uh, we didn't put it in the book because it's just a super well-known metaphor, but I often use it in my classes. So remember C.S. Lewis had this great analogy of the hallway of faith? Yes. You have a hallway of faith, and that's what we would call confessional faiths. The hallway are the faiths that we live and die on. It's Jesus is God, 
salvation is found in Christ and no one else. Uh, the Bible is, is authoritative. All that kind of, That's the hallway. Now, there's rooms off the hallway, Lewis said. And one room would be Calvinism. One room would be Arminianism. One room would be egalitarianism. One room would be uh, complementarianism. One room would be uh, my view of gender roles. One would be how I'm going to vote politically. Right? So he had all these rooms off the hallway. So here's what we have found, Josh, is we're part of the Winsome Conviction Project. So we work with other universities. We work with high schools, helping people to map their convictions and how not to weaponize their convictions. So I'll give you two examples of weaponizing. So you're a complementarian and you've got an egalitarian faculty member. Or at your church, you've got an egalitarian pastor and you've got a, a complementarian assistant pastor. Well, nobody's happy, Josh, being a room off the hallway. This is what we've discovered. No one is happy saying my deep belief is, is a room off the hallway with a kind of like live and let live attitude. Okay? So I got to get my belief in the hallway. Because then if it gets in the hallway, you have to believe it. You don't get to opt out if I can get it in the hallway. So here's what we have found. Here's here's a move that complementarians make. And again, Josh, I'd consider myself a soft complementarian. Okay. Um, they'll say this. Tim, do you think the Trinity is in the hallway? I'm like, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, Trinity is in the hallway. Well, egalitarians attack the Trinity because they want to dismantle the, um, uh, the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And they want to flatten it, that uh, Jesus will never be subservient to the Father. And they lay out this, this argument. So they go, so what, what egalitarians are doing is a weakening of the Trinity. The Trinity is the hallway, thus the wrong. It's a move to get everything into the hallway. And we're saying, boy, you've got to be careful doing that. And, and of course, egalitarians would fight back against that. Uh, as hard as they could, but we have to we have to keep ourselves from trying to force people to believe what we believe because we can get it into the hallway. Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I think that that's that takes humility all by itself is the willingness because we believe convictions with I don't know this is just coming to me now, but it seems as if we believe convictions with way more emotional zeal than we believe confessional things. Um, oh, nicely know, said. Oh, say that you know again, what, Josh. That you know good. what I say mean? I mean, it seems as if we believe convictions with way more emotional zeal and fervor than we do confessional things. Like we know mm. it's right to believe in the Trinity. We know it's right to believe Christ is divine. But man, you want to get somebody's blood boiling Talk to them about, you know, partisan politics or talk to them about oh, yeah. <laughs> what's oh. on the news and whether the media is slanted and, and ha you know, all of these things. And so, you know, I, I guess a question I have. So as a as a pastor, I'm obviously doing my best through the power of the Holy Spirit every week to take the truths found in the passage that I'm preaching and present them to the people in context make them relevant to our lives and hopefully invite the spirit in to 
convict them, right, about where this passage may need to reorient their thinking. Well, there have been several times from my own convictional standpoint, I, I will see something in the passage that I really think speaks to a present day issue. And it doesn't happen often. I'm not real quick on the draw. I have to think about these things for quite a while, but occasionally it'll happen. And I'll present something that I think is true. Um, and I'll preach it with conviction, obviously, but mm-hmm. it does tend to spell out something that rubs somebody funny um, on a political spectrum, for instance. And then then the responses are generally kind of, and you both have talked a lot about this in your book, about, okay, well, we know what camp he's in. He's a liberal. Right. And it, it's a quick... Um, maybe discarding of what all that I had just said in order, you know, and, and so as I'm listening to you talk though, I am wondering when you have a conviction, I I mean, I'm a Christian, I'm I'm the pastor, but I'm just another Christian with my own conviction mapping experiences, emotions, that whole thing. So when I preach for the benefit of the whole church, how do I know whether I'm just preaching my own conviction <laughs> or whether I'm preaching what needs to be shared for the benefit of all? Does that make sense? Ah, that's such a, that's such a good question. I, I would say, Josh, as a professor, we're, we're sort of in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I give a preamble, if I say, if I say, what do we want our churches to be? Like, what's, what's one of the fundamental functions of our church today? Is, is evangelism important? Is it important to get people to listen to the Christian perspective? Well, Josh, I get every hand in the room goes up. I've done this at pastor's conferences. Every, every hand goes up. And then I say how important it is to make our churches inviting. Like, like, do you want non-Christians to feel the freedom to come into your church? Josh, again, every hand goes up. Then I say this. Well, if a transgendered person came into your church, where would they go to the bathroom? Where would they go to the bathroom? And they'd be like, well, they would have to go, listen, they can go with, with, the, with the, what they were born with. That's what they can go. And I said, do you know, I know of trans people who do not drink any water or coffee the entire morning of Sunday because they they can't go to the bathroom. I said, so I make this comment, Josh, if we're serious about getting the trans community, we need to have trans bathrooms. Okay? Mm. In our churches. Now, I heard that, mm, that was not overwhelming. That was not what I was hoping for, Josh. That mm-hmm. I'm kidding. I'm kidding you, Josh. Um, but okay, so so how, there's one way I can do that good, and there's one way I can do that bad. I can do that bad by saying, okay, let me just tell you what God's word says. Right? God's word says we care for orphans and widows in distress. What does that mean? People are marginalized. Well, today, when the most marginalized groups are transgendered. Um, I just put this in an article I wrote. Uh, 55% of trans men have tried to commit suicide at least once. 30% of trans women have tried to commit suicide at least once. 
Wow. So we need to reach this marginalized group. And the way to do it, I think, is to have a bathroom that they can go to. Um, and I think that that's what we need to do. That's what God wants us to do. Okay. To me, I just weaponize my belief. Did mm. you hear that? I did. The other way yeah. to say this is, okay, I, I, we're deeply concerned about the transgender community because of all the suicide rates, the bullying rates. So what can we do? to love them because we're called to love them. Now there, I feel like I can speak authoritatively. We're called mm -hmm. to love them, but how do we love them is, is where it's really gonna get interesting. I think we all could agree that God loves the transgender community, but then how do we express love? I want to suggest to you to this morning that we have a transgendered bathroom in our church, right? That to me right. is the softening of it uh, and the first way, I basically say, this is what God wants us to do. I find a passage. I make my fight in the passage. And yep. then, I, then I say, now you're against God's word, against God's love, if we don't have a transgendered bathroom. Does that make sense, Josh? Give me it a feedback. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Because in part of that, I think, from the pastor's perspective, is that we, I need to trust that the Holy Spirit will lead the church to the direction he's leading us all. If I strong arm them by forcing that that's a little bit of me taking the control um away from them and away from the holy spirit to lead them so if i if i say this is a logical inference from this passage this is a logical conclusion i'm going to toss this out as as a as a viable possibility for how we fulfill this command um and then invite i, I mean i know it's going to stir in people's hearts and right. that's fine. I, I want them to be free to respond back. And then I want them to be free to say where this maybe rubs up against their own convictions and then to do their own conviction mapping, maybe with my help or someone else's to begin to uncover why is it that that topic is continually a stumbling block topic, you know, for you. Yeah. Um, because you're right. When you, when you say the marginalized, the least of these you've hit it. I mean, there, there is a, a group of people right there who carry a tremendous amount of weight and baggage and don't know how to find acceptance and love and embrace by other people in the world. And that's a, that is a um, very hard place to be. Very hard. And let me, and the devil is in the details, Josh. So we went to a church that I was helping with on the teaching team where a man came fully dressed as a woman. Uh, wore a dress, had a nice ba a handbag, heels, wig, dressed as a woman. And come in, praise the Lord, um, raised his hands during worship, and just regularly came back. And I loved how the elders, leaders dealt with it. It's like, okay, let, what are we, we going to do? And, and it was good because they had good conversations. Like, okay, what are we going to tell the kids? Mm -hmm. That's fair. Does this mean we're condoning it? Now, that's the conviction mapping part to me, Josh, is yeah. if we allow him to be here, is that condoning it? And would it be the same if a couple living together came and she was pregnant, obviously pregnant, and they're obviously not married? Is mm -hmm. that condoning it? Right? So right. that, 
that's conviction mapping, Josh, to me is, okay, let's figure out why you couldn't walk into that store. What was it about unions? Is it unions or is it your father? Yeah. Like, where's the, what's happening here? If a person says, I will leave this church if that man is allowed to continue dressed as a woman coming into this congregation, our kids see it, I am leaving this church. Now, one response, of course, could be, well, get out of here, leave. Leave. Sure. Yeah. Go find another church. But it'd be great to sit down and map his, compassionately map his convictions, like Aristotle, goodwill towards this person, to find out why is this evoking such a strong reaction, and would you have that reaction to a, a couple where she's pregnant, but it's clearly they're not married, living together? Yeah. Why, why not have that kind of reaction to that couple? And again, it's all, it needs to be done in love. It needs to be done with a tender heart. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we feel like conviction mapping is helpful for us as individuals, but also for the people that we work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had listed several questions here in your, um, you know, clarifying our convictions. That's the first thing we do. And then the personal history of mm -hmm. our convictions, which I think, I think what this did to me, um, I'm, I'm kind of in a place in my life where looking back over my life, um, looking at the story that God is in the process of writing and transforming the parts of my story I wish maybe weren't there. And, and what is he doing to use those for his own honor and redirecting my life? And so this really resonated with me because you just asked, when did you first start to think this way? What defining events, relationships, or life experiences crystallized your thinking about this issue? That was a fascinating question. Because I'm not sure, Tim, well, I can only speak for myself. I have never pondered a question like that. <laughs> I just, <laughs> well, of course, this is the right way to think. This is the way I think. And instead of stepping back and saying, certain events led me to this conclusion, or even looking over my, my life, if I'm really honest, go back 10 years. I didn't have this conviction 10 years ago. So something some series of events maybe has transpired. And then the last one you listed was what emotions surface when you think about this issue. And yeah. I would say that in a lot of arguments that I've been in and myself included is, is sort of, I don't need to look at those emotions. I'm right. And therefore my anger mm. is justified because mm. I'm right. And you need to be, I don't know, overpowered, shown to be wrong, required to repent and believe my view. Um, do you think other things are going on under the surface that cause us to kind of respond with such vitriol toward one another? <laughs> um, is it insecurity? I mean, what, or, or is it just a matter of we've not really investigated the mapping part? Well, so we do a whole chapter, Josh, on, in essence, groupthink. Um, uh, yeah. because yep. here's where we see things start to go off the rails is let's say you and I sit down and have a conversation and we disagree with each other about, let's say a theological issue or a social issue. And you and I actually make headway, right? We listen to each other. We, we do mapping of each other and it's like, wow, this is great. Okay. He's a Democrat. I'm a Republican, but we both are okay. Great. 
then you go back to your groups. And Josh, you go back to your group and say, you won't believe this. I, I met a really sharp, kind-hearted um, Democrat. And your group is like, no, yeah, come on. No way. Those guys are, <laughs> no way. Get out of here. The Democrats want to ruin this country. Who did you talk to? And you get, you get deprogrammed in a heartbeat. Hmm. So uh, these groups can become very uh, detrimental to a church. Uh, we call them echo chambers, where groupthink is the highest value is you're loyal to the group. Yeah. And any deviation from the group is seen as, uh, I mean, you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose your closest, intimate uh, place of belonging within a big church. And so, yeah. uh, Josh, here's what we figured out. It's, it's, it's really hard to get people to talk to each other, but it's better to get groups to talk to each other because then the groups get impacted, not just one lone individual who, who immediately gets reprogrammed back into the group. Mm -hmm. And I, we're really struggling with this, Josh. We had an experience at our university where we thought we had a great conversation in front of students. Uh, about two professors on the role social justice plays uh, in uh, the gospel. Yeah. We thought it was a great conversation. By the way, when, when it was done, they thought it was a great conversation. Hmm. They both go back to their departments, their groups. We get a phone call literally five days later. Both of them hated it. Why? Because their group, who, by the way, Josh, many of them weren't even there. Wow. Um, deprogram. Deprogram. You were taken advantage of. That was not fair. That was not good. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he asked you that question. Notice he didn't ask the other guy that question. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. my Did goodness. You? Oh, it, it, it happened within one week. We go, Josh, we go from thinking, me and Rick, how do you get nominated for the Nobel Prize? I mean, we, we, we were thinking... <laughs> <laughs> Those first weeks, we're like, do they mail it to you? Is it a, is it a live presentation? I don't know how you get it's it. It's Zoom now. That's how they do it's it. It's Zoom now. But Josh, in a week, oh. we got emails saying, this is not fair how you did it. And you've actually, one guy, you actually have done more harm than good that students oh. listened to what you did that night. Oh my goodness. That's, Josh, that's groupthink. And every church, depending on your size, uh, we know people splinter into groups. They're, remember, Dun, you might not remember this was a very specific point, but Dunbar's number is a leading anthropologist who says that people cling to groups no greater than 150. Mm -hmm. And within those groups, they sink even deeper. But, but most people will just hang around a group of around 60, 70 people, 100 people. Wow. And th those groups determine what reality is, your faith commitments, and more importantly, what you think of the other side. Yeah. And that, yeah. that goes off the rails pretty quick in a church, as well as Christians talking to people outside the church. Yeah. Well, you had writ written on page 176 that nearly 40% of Americans interact with a person from a different political party only a few times a year or never. Yes. In short, for all Americans talk about diversity, we like sameness a whole lot more, especially when it comes to thinking. 
And yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, we're I'm I'm doing a, a series through Revelation on this podcast normally, and we're just to, almost to the end of the book and looking at the fact that the gates um, will never be shut by day and there will be no night there and the kings of the earth will bring their glory um, into the into the city and, mm. and lay it at the Lamb's feet and how much God loves diversity far more than we actually do. <laughs> and then I picked this book up this morning and finished it and I was like, yep, he's saying the exact same thing. But but that's, it's not shocking really, Tim. I think you you just put words to the facts and I think we all know them but the but the idea that we do have a very dismissive reaction normally from the gut of yeah. oh that person and we we stereotype right caricature label and then we mm-hmm. we're free to dismiss we're just we're free to push those views out as being unbiblical or ungodly or worse i guess if we and, and then, Josh, uh, sometimes it, it, this happens all the time, but sometimes you're just acutely aware of it. So in the book, uh, Rick and I go to this great organization that helps people communicate uh, politically. But we went there uh, and you had to say ahead of time what you were. So I put I was an independent uh, leaning towards Republican. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got there, uh, Rick gets the Republican lanyard. And she looks at me, she goes, man, I'm really sorry. We are completely out of Republican lanyards. All we have is a blue lanyard for being a Democrat. Now, me being a communication professor, I said, love it. Give it to me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> give, me the, give me the Democrat. <laughs> right? Yep. Josh, it was fascinating walking around and a person would walk up to me, a person with a red lanyard. And the first thing he would do is his eyes would divert to my lanyard and come right back up. And he wow. would assume he knew everything about me. Yep. And we got into some great conversations where I'd push back on, on some Republican beliefs. And then when a Democrat would come up to me and look at my blue lanyard, that, that hush tones would talk about, can you believe, I mean, some of these Republicans. <laughs> and guess what? Rick, who had on a red lanyard, said the Reds were doing the exact same thing. Wow. So how quickly we do that is we are shutting off conversation in a heartbeat because uh, we don't allow other perspectives into our groups to, to give yeah. the counter perspective. Now, let's, let me just say this, Josh, I don't know what your church is like, but churches are very leery to do this. Like I have a good friend of mine who brought in a Muslim to speak from the pulpit and hmm. explain his journey to Islam. Wow. And if we're to be called to reach uh, the Great Commission, then one out of five people in the world self-identify as Muslim. So he thought it was a great idea to bring a Muslim, put him on the stage with him, the pastor, and he interviewed him. And people could ask questions. Uh, I think he told me later he lost 15% of his church. Oh, yeah, wow. something like 15% of his church. And I see there I want to do conviction mapping with these people who left. Yep, yep. I just want to say, okay, work, work me through this. Why? Uh, uh, what events? What do you think was happening? Um, 
this is the pastor leading it. Mm-hmm. He, he laid out the Great Commission. and then So help me, how did you interpret it? And then map this for me, where, where the convictions are such that you're now going to lead the church. Yeah. That's what we need to do, Josh. That's what and we so, need to do. When we bring in new perspectives, uh, you see groupthink rise up really quick because it's like, why is why is he here? He's not one of us. Yeah, he's he's precisely here because he's not one of us. And my university struggles with this as well, Josh. It's like, well, here's how it gets phrased: Winsome Conviction Project. Right? We want to bring in different voices because we want to engage them, learn from them, and engage them in a winsome kind of way. Here's the number one way the pushback is phrased. Why would we give that person a microphone Hmm. to possibly influence our students? That's how it's phrased. Wow. Um, And by the way, if you go to winsomeconviction.com, you can listen to our podcast. Go to our website, winsomeconviction.com. Our podcast is simply called Winsome Conviction. You can find it on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Because, Josh, we do bring on people. We just brought on one of the top feminist theorists in the world to bring us up to speed on feminism. How about that? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check your podcast out, and I'll make a link to it as well for, for other listeners yeah. when, they, when they hear this episode. Oh, yes, thank you. And we get pushback. We get pushback like, wait a minute, you just gave her a platform. Yeah. And I said, well, sure, well, sure. But, but don't we want to go to non-Christian universities where, where we hope and pray they will give us a platform? Yep. And, yep. And, we, and we disagree with her, but there was a whole lot we agreed with her. Boy, when she talked about the three waves of feminism, uh, most Christians don't know anything about the first wave of feminism. Wow. And so it was a great time of getting education, uh, but that's the pushback we get, Josh, is yep. why did you give him the microphone? And, and wow. we say because God's truth is God's truth, and you all need to hear what's out there because you've been called to reach these very people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but would that wow. play in your church? Would that play in your church if you brought up a, a Muslim, not have him preach, I get that, but have right. him be up there with you both sitting up on the, uh, the platform where the pulpit is and having a guided discussion? That would raise a lot of questions. Um, and to give you a brief bit of context, I'm an Anglican priest and uh, was serving at a church for six years in this city. And three months ago, through many months of processing, we actually joined forces with a Lutheran church in the same city and moved from our storefront into their church building. So from January 1st to the present, we are an Anglican and a Lutheran church. And so the members of my former Anglican church, I believe would all fully trust me and what I would be trying to do if I brought a Muslim onto the platform. I am still in process of getting to know, and the members of the Mm -hmm. Lutheran side are still getting to know me. My hunch is from what I've observed, that several of them would not be very comfortable with that, but mm-hmm. would be a great invitation for conviction mapping. And um, because again, the same thing is true. If we believe uh, what what we do believe, but what you're pointing out here 
which I love so much about your book, is that we're not Christians just, just well, we, we can be a Christian with a confessional belief. That's true. But what really causes us to love our neighbors as ourselves or fail to do so, or what encourages us to forgive and not hold grudges or be bitter or throw off the old man and put on the new, that's the realm of conviction. And those are the things mm. that sometimes we can't let go of long enough to really follow Christ. If I can put it in blunt terms, I mean, Jesus didn't just call us to have mental adherence to a set of doctrines to call ourselves kingdom citizens. He's calling right. us to a way right. of life. Right. And what you and, and Rick are tapping into is that way of life. You're tapping into yeah. Yeah. how are we known by those who are not Christians? What what type of love does confessional belief actually produce convictionally in a person who is fully surrendered to Jesus in his or her life? And so I'm, I'm aiming for that as a leader of a church, yeah, yeah. but I, I'm wrestling through all this right along with any members that I recommend your book to, because goodness, I don't know that I've fully formed why I think what I do, um, but it's a journey that I'm, I'm happy to start. Well, and Josh, let me be honest. Rick and I always feel like we say to guys like you who are just trying to do a great job is we're Rick and I are kind of the gadflies. Like we're not currently pastors. Rick was a pastor for 20 years. I was an interim teaching pastor for two. So you just need to take it with a grain of salt because we're like, yeah, Josh, do it. Do Uh, it. Yeah, sure. You can come on, man. It'll be awesome. (laughs) And and, and when your church is closed, and you're trying to get a job at Biola, we'll say, sorry, man, we're just not taking anybody on right now. Sorry, man, nobody. Yeah, that's right. No, <laughs> and, and that's fine. And that, but, but there's a, a, you know, another area in my life right now that, that Jesus is really working on is, is my tendency to just judge other people. Mm. And reading your whole book, just Matthew 7, not judging, take the log out of your own eye, and, and just the willingness we have to be very sensitive to our own stories and our own formed convictions, but how rarely we extend that same kindness and compassion towards someone else who's gone through their own experiences and has arrived at a different conviction. And so what you're inviting us to, I really think, is laying down like I'm not your judge, so I don't have to make a judgment regarding whether your decision to invite a Muslim to stand on the stage and speak to the church has to apply to me because you're not stating that as some objective, this is what all good Christians do. Hence, if I don't do this, I'm a failed pastor, you know, um, but is the freedom to be able to say, I don't know if I sense this happening right now, but I'm going to take what you've said and give it some serious thought and prayer and see if maybe that would serve us well. Um, it's a bit of well, a And what would posture. rock the church, Josh, is, is okay, so let's say you take this time of reflection, seeking the Lord, uh, wisdom from the elders, and you come to the conclusion, yeah, we're going to do it. Hmm. Now, that's what this book is, is really about. That's great. It's how can people in the congregation completely disagree with what you're what you want to do others are applauding you like I'm so, I'm so glad he's doing this is the best thing and other people are like this is this is ridiculous and it is yeah. it is so wrong what he's doing that's when the book comes in 
can you disagree without dividing? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, and, that's right. uh, and Josh, yeah. you, you read the book, so you know, we're talking about the hard ones. Uh, when I included oh, yeah. that smoke machine, that's, <laughs> a, that's based on a real life wow. situation that, that almost yep. split the church. Wow. That is um, true. Yeah. Yep. Well, if I could ask you, this is a little bit of a personal question, and I know sure. we're about out of time. Um, I, I actually used to be um, a Calvinist in my thinking oh. um, to the point where I, and I, I married it fully to this is doctrinal. If you don't believe in total depravity, the way a Calvinist defines it, it's because you're totally depraved. And you <laughs> yeah. don't realize how yeah. you know, it's a circular, it's a closed loop. I mean, I, I had the right. loop figured out this sort of thing through some events that I've haven't quite come to. I'm, I've shifted pretty far from that. Like, I don't know if I even like the categories, Calvin or many and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but I remember completely shunning certain authors whose books were red flagged by the Calvinist people that I knew as being heretical. Mm. And it, later in life, I secretly, because I didn't have the courage to admit that I was venturing into this forbidden ground to read these <laughs> men's books, Tim, I'm telling you, they have radically transformed my life. And I find myself stuck in this I never explored my reasons for thinking I wanted to be a Calvinist then. I don't ultimately know why I've shifted now, but I'm trying to engage people sometimes who really believe that to be a Calvinist means like to be a Christian and there's no way mm -hmm. to separate it. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I got more of these like moral beliefs from your book, but could you talk for just a second? How, how do we, engage people across some of these really strong doctrinal divides like a Calvinism, Arminianism, election, free will, determinant, predestination, free will. I mean, because those seem to be for many people limited to just the passages. They're not, well, this is what I think. Or do you think mapping convictions would help flesh that out as well? Yeah, I think it would help flesh it out why this issue has become so emotional for you, why it's hard for you to tolerate people of a different persuasion when it comes to this issue. Hmm. Uh, and let me just say to your listeners, I'm one of them. I, I, I write books on winsome conviction, winsome persuasion, but when I get to Calvinist Arminian topic, I... I I uh I get pretty heated pretty quickly, <laughs> okay. but I, but I need to figure out conviction mapping why that's true. Why is it that this is the button that gets pushed for me? Um, mm -hmm. So I so people can live by themselves in a church if they don't need each other. So you can be an egalitarian complementarian. And everything's fine until the church makes the decision that a woman's going to preach from behind the pulpit. Mm. Now it's like, the, now we're in a fight. Because before, yeah, you believe your goofy way. I believe my biblical way. I don't have to deal with you. <laughs> but now when the administration makes a point, 
then you, now it's fighting words because yeah. it's a, this is now affecting me. So I, I would say, Josh, all my seminary training is from a reformed seminary. Mm-hmm. I love uh, Calvin, Luther. I love the professors at my seminary. But as I was there, I just couldn't uh, accept what was being said. And I would read all the Calvinist books, again, Burkhoff, Luther, Owen, and it, they were persuasive. I was on the debate team in college. I, can, I, can, I have another gear. I can look at passages and go, okay, I can, all right, I can see this. But to me, the conclusion was God was the author of evil. Hmm. That was the conclusion if I ran my Reformed theology all the way up and even met with some professors who sat down, and two of them were candid enough to say, yes, I completely understand where you're going with this, but this is where we evoke a mystery or we invoke an antinomy, which is an apparent contradiction that can be resolved in the mind of God. Mm. Well, I couldn't couldn't do it. I I could not have God be the author of evil. Yeah. And I'm not saying every Calvinist believes that, but, uh, but some of the Calvinists at my seminary did, and I respected them. I couldn't live with that. Now, yeah. convi- conviction mapping would be, Josh, why can't you live with that possibility? Like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And, and working it out in my own spirit, my own uh, studying. So now I am a pro- I'm an Arminian, and uh, I really have to keep it in check when I talk to Calvinists. I have to keep it in check because I could weaponize in a heartbeat if I wanted to. Um, and I choose not to because when you teach at a place like Biola, these are sharp men and women who, have studied, yeah. who know the languages better than I do. And they have come out are Calvinistic. And they're good people. They, one of my really good friends is Calvinist. We, now, we're able to joke, which is amazing, because we don't teach a class together. Okay. Yep. The closer you are into community, the harder it is to keep this from becoming an issue because you start to need each other to do church projects and stuff like that. That become that becomes an issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Um well, I always like to end my conversations by just posing posing this one last question and we've talked a lot about these things, but how how would you sum up where the church today is most in need of what you and and Rick have written? Well, I think this is a really easy one because of the time we just came out of. Uh, We came out of an incredibly contentious election that really did hurt churches. It really did hurt uh, my university. Um, And... People are disappointed with people. They're angry with each other. But, but here's the thing, Josh. They are not talking to each other. Mm, yeah. They are not talking to each other. And if, you're, if you believe that election was robbed, then you are in one camp. And other people in the other camp go, what, how, how, what morons could believe the election got robbed? Mm. Come on. That's, those people are ridiculous. It wasn't robbed. And the other group is saying, you'd have to be clueless not to see that that election wasn't robbed. So here's the problem we're finding, Josh, is those camps never talk to each other. 
And the more they talk to each other and the more they watch news programs or respected Christian voices who believe it was robbed, wasn't robbed, we're, we're getting into trench warfare where yep. the two sides never see e- each other anymore, but just lob emails, blogs, Instagrams at each other. And I think that's where, I think that's where the church is at today when it, comes to, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to critical race theory, when it comes to trans athletes, and when it comes to the election, we are in real danger of having splintered churches who no longer talk to each other about the issue. Wow. Yep. And so your book is, I think, perfectly timed to give us, give us a roadmap, more or less, of here are the pitfalls to avoid. Here's what healthy, um, I, duo logs, I think you called them. Um, yeah, duo logs those, at, at Biola, yeah. Yeah, what those look like and talking about having people sit down and have dinner with each other before they get into a debate, you know, if they don't personally know each other. And um, I think that that's, I think it's excellent. I, I loved it. I'm definitely going to recommend it to anybody I talk with. And um, I'm just really thankful that you two wrote it. And uh, I wish you the best in, yeah, this Winsome Conviction project. Um, I'll make a link to that. Yeah, it's just winsomeconviction.com. And there you'll see all of our books. Uh, We have uh, videos, resources, um, a bunch of different things that you can take a look at that hopefully will be helpful to people. That's great. I'll do that. That way, if people want to follow up with you um, afterwards, they'll be able to find you there. Yeah, that'd be great. Wonderful. Well, so Tim, Josh, thank you. get, get yeah. a hold of Winsome Persuasion okay. and we'll do this all over again. That sounds awesome. Wonderful. <laughs> Love it. No, all this right. is really, really good. I really am thankful. Thanks for taking the time to talk and uh, I'll let you know when I make this, make this episode live. So thank you, Josh. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, what a lot of fun that was talking with Tim. I really hope that you enjoyed that. I really hope that the Spirit will use that to convict you and invite you in to some conviction mapping of your own, as well as recognizing some of the power of group think and where that may have a hold on your life. I, I know I'm certainly investigating where that may have a hold on my own. And it occurred to me as I was re-listening to the conversation that Tim and I had in preparation for finalizing this episode that I do wonder when we walk into our church gatherings, when we walk into a small group, when we have friends over for dinner and we engage in meaningful and life-giving conversation, I do wonder how many times we actually expect that our group think categories may potentially be challenged. And I know as a pastor and as someone who prepares sermons, I I tend to think about that um, first. And I do wonder how often we come into our church gatherings imagining that what we are going to hear is our groupthink. Now, if our groupthink is shaped predominantly by the gospel of the kingdom, then I certainly hope that is what we will hear when we gather on Sundays, but I'm afraid sometimes, as I shared with Tim, when our convictions are where we really get passionate and really have emotional zeal and fervor, 
If those things are not in line with the gospel of the kingdom, then I do hope that in church gatherings or in small groups or in life-giving conversations, we're surrounded by people who will speak the truths of the gospel of the kingdom and that we will ask the Spirit to guide us through being able to stand the kingdom ground in the face of groupthink. Um, But those were just some of my thoughts as I re-listened to our conversation. Again, I will put a link in the show notes to this episode to winsomeconviction.com, which Tim says is the best way to contact him, to follow him, to find his books and or to access his podcast. And I really hope that you will take advantage of those opportunities. We are in an information age, but information is available to us if we just want to go out and find it. And so following someone like Tim, I think would be an excellent decision for for your summer. If you want something to challenge you while you head into the summer, pick up a copy of Winsome Conviction and let that be the, the ground for the Spirit to do His work in your life. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for those of you who have left a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. Um, If you have not already done so, I would encourage you to. This helps other people to find the podcast and be encouraged in the same ways you have been. And then again, thank you so much to the several of you who are supporting Unbinding the Bible on a monthly basis. If you would like to do that, if you've been encouraged by the things you've heard on this podcast and would like to support it, 99 cents a month, 4.99 a month, 9.99 a month, some other one-time gift, anything like that, There will be a link at the bottom of the show notes directing you where you can become a supporter. And I would greatly appreciate that as that gives me opportunities to buy new resources, to get a hold of these books, to set up these interviews, and to take the time and energy that it does take me to be able to fully know the material well enough to engage the authors in a way that I think will help encourage them and then also encourage you by the ways that we Um, are able to relay that information to you. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you next time.